Oh boy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Are you all right? Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm, uh, I've been on the edge of of a cold for the last few days, and I was sort of hoping that it wasn't going to wear me out too much. Just because I've got stuff to do, but obviously the show as well. I didn't want to sound like blah, 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 all the mm. way through. I'm not that bad, thankfully, but um, my nose is still a bit clogged up. So I'm hoping that doesn't affect the quality of the audio. I never remember to do this, but if you pause, then sniff, then carry on, at least you can cut out all of the sniffs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This week, basically, I feel very strung out. And the main reason is because I'm doing a course as part of my job. And it's actually like a, it's a PG cert, so it's kind of a stage on from a degree. Although it's not, not that involved, to be honest. It's like a part-time thing. Right. It's way out of my comfort zone in that it's kind of a teaching course. Because it was out of my comfort zone, because I didn't really understand what one of my assessments was getting at. I, I managed to completely forget about a big part of it, which was a hand-in that was supposed to happen last Wednesday. Uh-oh. I worked out the, the hand-ins are at 10 o'clock at night. I finally allowed myself to realise I wasn't going to make it for the 10 o'clock deadline at 3am the following morning. Fuck. <laughs> but so that's something I've been kind of working on that, and we had our work due today as well. So I'm feeling very... I'm feeling kind of stretched out. An Elephant Words finishes a six-week run this coming saturday as well so i'm trying to sort that out and trying to be a good husband luckily the pressure's not really on on that one so. <laughs> <laughs> wow i had a nice day today and i've just made it sound like the most miserable time a human being could have that's your talent isn't it that's your um your mutant gift secret power my mutant power yeah what, morose? <laughs> Pessimism, moroseness. Yeah. Um, ingratitude. Yeah, ingratitude <laughs> is my mutant power. Me and me and most of the rest of our continent. <laughs> Not our continent. Our part of the world. Our continent is Europe, isn't it? It is. So if you were going to bundle us and America together, you'd say English-speaking, wouldn't you? You'd say us, me and most of the rest of the English-speaking world. The English-speaking West. Oh, I don't fucking know. Me and everyone else in England and America, but probably not the Scottish and the Welsh. I mean, what have they got to be grateful for? Oh, I mean, I wouldn't call the um, I wouldn't call the states part of the English-speaking West. They don't speak English, just like the Scottish <laughs> don't speak English. <laughs> you know? No, that's true. What they speak is Americanese, isn't it? Not English. Americanese. Yeah. Not not American. There's clearly a very important reason why there's a U in colour. I can't tell you why, but it's there. <laughs> Otherwise, it's color, and that's not right, is it? What's Otherwise a color? It's color. No, exactly. It sounds like a fr- it's like a French word. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's found uh, around the neck of French dress shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Unanswered. Towards the end of show three, uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, the office Christmas party and how there is much, if not more, um, a test of endurance than something that you actually enjoy. Now, some of that might just be the dread, right? Coming up to, you know, the Christmas party and thinking, oh, God, do I really have to go? It's not going to be that much fun. But you go and somehow you make your way through it. What kind of stuck with me and, and the reason why we're on this particular topic for this show 
is that we were talking about the Christmas party. We were talking a little bit about like secret centers and stuff based around work and how in order to perhaps get through a day at work or to get through the Christmas party with, uh, w- with your colleagues, you have to switch mode. Mm-hmm. You get yourself into a particular frame of mind. You adopt a particular version of yourself, uh, a different set of uh, personality traits almost to get through that evening or to be in that environment. And we can look at this in some ways, at least to start with, about being like home and work. But I think we'll identify a lot of other areas where we switch modes, where we have a particular part of our self that we adopt or portray or wear. Like a skin suit. <laughs> yes. And um, those skin suits have to be well lubricated. Do you have to put lotion on the skin quite regularly? Well, it's, it's difficult because the skin suit is the exact same size as your actual skin. So you do need to grease it up a little bit to fit into it properly. And it's always difficult to know whether to wear anything underneath it, if that's going to change the cut of it. Um, I think it's interesting that you're talking about the way you kind of identify it is um, switching modes. It's like you're changing pace or something Yeah. when you're going from one situation to another. But the way it, it kind of is, is almost it's like there's two different versions of yourself. There's who you are when you socialize, who might not be who you are when you're at home. There's who you are when you go out to the pub or when you go out to a restaurant, uh, when you're trying to be engaging and entertaining, but not be too obnoxious, maybe, depending on who you are, probably not me, and who you are when you're at work. It's like when you see someone in a place that doesn't quite fit them in context and you sometimes don't really know how to talk to them exactly. Mm. Like you see someone from work or, or someone that you used to know really well, but you see them in a, I don't know, a sexual health clinic or something like that. I could have gone for supermarket. Okay, or you're buying condoms or something. That's not the moment to go, oh, hi! <laughs> <laughs> I may, I uh, no, that's an anecdote for a different day. Um, it's like that jarring moment where you see someone in a context you don't quite expect to see them in. Yes. But it's sustained for a, for a really long period of time. And so you're kind of struggling to remember, well, am I who I'm supposed to be when I'm at work? What sort of things can I joke about? It can be quite difficult because it's like a, a clashing of, in my case, more a clashing of different versions of myself. But I guess they're two different ways of thinking about the same thing. Let's think about the versions of ourselves that we have with our family, I think, first of all. Family being a constant, but um, as you grow up and mature, uh, you spend an awful lot of time around your family. They see you change an awful lot. Um, And that's an area where you can sort of feel comfortable as yourself. If you're going to be surly or grumpy or stomp upstairs with anybody, it's going to be your own parents. Yeah, Comfort's an interesting way of putting it, but yeah, that is when your responses to things are going to be the most pure Uh, The most raw and immediate. (laughs) (laughs) The most raw, the most immediate, the most undisciplined. Mm. Because there's no great cost in it. If you end up knocking your parents off for a short while, you know that long term you'll all reset back to your default position. Around the family, around your parents, brothers and sisters, whatever, you're going to feel you're going to feel quite loose. You're going to be freestyling. <laughs> you know what I mean? There yeah. isn't a particularly rehearsed manner in how you are. You're free about what you like, to a certain degree about what you say. Mm-hmm. As we already said, even if you make a mistake, the punishment involved in making that mistake isn't particularly high, isn't particularly long-term. And of course, unlike practically everybody else you meet in your life, you don't have to win them around. That's the main thing, isn't it? They either like or dislike you from a point before you were in a position to really dissemble or try and win them over. They've, they've already decided by the time you're smart enough to really know what's going on. I'm trying to give a little bit of latitude for the situations where families don't like each other, that's all. 
whether they like you or not, you don't feel you have to win them over. Yeah, yeah. okay. So this is quite presumptuous because we, we can only base this stuff on our own experience. Mm. And while it's possible for us to be uh, to, to have empathy for other situations, we're not going to be able to talk about it with anywhere near the amount of experience. Yeah. Um, in this assumed environment where everything's swell, you can at least develop the basis of your character, can't you, of, of, of who you are. There's still a lot of you that gets moulded around interactions with people outside of your family. As you age and change, you'll encounter new people and new things and parts of you will change. So that, that's, an, that's always a constantly changing and evolving thing. I don't want to make this too much about childhood, but the thing about childhood in particular is that this is where you first learn about either enhancing or reducing a, a thing about you. Yeah. And your approach, whether positive or negative, you know, whether it ends up creating a level of fear in you that makes you more tentative about new environments later on in life because of poor experiences and poor reactions when you were younger. Um, but say, for example, friends, right? Um, the way you pick friends as you grow older is very different. But from the beginning, it's often because you're in the same class at school. So that's a great reason. Um, maybe you live on the same street. That's a great reason. But then they'll be like, oh, you know, you both like riding bikes and that's why you're friends or you both like watching the real ghostbusters and that's why you're friends that sort of thing yeah very basic things that bring you together so obviously when you're in the company of those friends then you'll be doing those things together you wouldn't necessarily go to the friend of yours who doesn't like the real ghostbusters and insist to watch it because that's not going to work out well sure although this it, this may be something you that you, you're getting to but it'll probably be something we talk about later is it that you become someone who doesn't want to watch real ghostbusters when you're at the friend's house who doesn't like real ghostbusters or do you just access a different part of your personality like well okay fine i don't even think about watching real ghostbusters with this guy because this is the guy who has all of the uh whose dad has all of the dirty magazines that we live through <laughs> so that's that's what i do that's what i do when i'm at his house mm. you're not thinking about it at that particular time do you see what i yeah. mean are you going to stand by yourself and go okay well fair enough they don't want to watch it we'll do something else but that doesn't stop me wanting to watch that later no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or, or you've got the choice where uh, actually the value you place on that friendship is greater than the value that you place on watching real Ghostbusters. And so you will actually change yourself in order to appease a relationship. Your personality will start to form or become, uh, yeah, will start to form or become different in, in that direction just because being around that person. Yeah, I see what you mean. Like you end up listening to lots of different music that way. Yes. Well, certainly I did. But that's like quite a soft change to make, isn't very, it? I mean, very, I guess yeah. if we were talking about they don't like watching or reading the same things, so you start reading something else or you learn something, that's one thing. But if like you start spending time with someone who prefers to ride around on a bike than sit in, those are two different sorts of activity. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So how likely are you to change to become the sort of person who wants to do a completely different activity? That's kind of off the point, but it's an interesting one, it, I think. It is interesting, and there's absolutely no way that I can scientifically draw any parallels between these. But it did make me think is that is that sort of pattern of behaviour of preparing, you know, or being willing to change an aspect of yourself in order to fit in a group or to have a particular relationship with either an individual or a group of individuals. Is that the sort of thing that if instead of kind of wanting to craft yourself and stick by yourself, that you're more prepared to mould yourself into a situation that is advantageous to you? 
Is mm-hmm. that why some people then find themselves uh, in a gang culture, for example? It's a terrible parallel to draw, but it's something worth thinking about, whether, whether that's almost a type of person. Yeah, I think you're much more likely to end up even either in a violent gang or a cult if you don't watch cartoons. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that's almost definitely uh, something. I can, tell, I can tell you that categorically about human nature. <laughs> From my point of view, once you've seen a cartoon mouse hit a cartoon cat square in the face with a heavy object, you don't need to reenact that in real life. Unlike actual gangs, which in London, apparently, from what I've read, uh, do chase each other around the estates with various household objects. Um, Curiosity about what happens to the shape of a frying pan when um, it is hit really hard into someone's face... Mm. Um, is the main reason for gang violence in most parts of this country, certainly. I don't know about America. I couldn't speak to America. Whereas you you and I know that if you hit someone hard enough in the face with a frying pan, the frying pan will uh, retain some memory of their face yes. in its very fabric. There's a lot of stuff I learned from Andy Cap that I now don't have to um, repeat in my own relationships as well, <laughs> which is quite good. Yeah, I, I've basically learned that if I stay out drinking all night and come home with a violent temperament, I will not have a happy relationship. That's something I learned from reading Andy Cap, so it's kind of instructive. Uh, I'm not sure what I learned from Garfield. I like lasagna. I think that's what I learned from Garfield. Mm. We are kind of going off the point to the things that influence people. But yeah, yeah, I suppose when you're younger, so you're at home with your parents and your parents might try and guide you into being a particular sort of person. For most people, um, whether their parents are really loving or really uh, distant, sure. you kind of, until you have to start going to school, you're your own person. And then when you start going to school, that's when you start adjusting your personality to fit in. You've, uh, that's normally where, where people learn things first time. When they're in the nursery, you snatching toys or biting people means you end up not being considered part of the group necessarily. So you adjust that behaviour, even though what you really want to do is bite other toddlers and steal the toys from them. And I guess that's the point at which your first version kind of splits off a little bit. And then you've got friends later on, the people you choose, which, which I think is what you were saying earlier on. The decisions you make to be around those people are decisions you make actually, it's a more conscious decision, whereas there are certain behaviours that you adopt just to be part of the group yeah. quite early on, just to be allowed around other people. And then you kind of have to learn the rules within a certain group if you're going to be hanging out mainly with, in my case, when I was hanging around with the um, guys who are really into heavy metal and um, into reading and stuff like that. It didn't do to just to talk too much about cute girls. It just seemed to aggravate people and make them uncomfortable. <laughs> so you just didn't do it. But then, so basically, I had those of my friends, and then all of my other friends were girls. Around girls, you can talk about girls a little bit, as long as they're not the girls you're possibly best not to revisit that particular point in my life. But, it, it, yeah, you, so you, you start to make more decisions, I guess, about who you want to... It's not just about fitting in. It's who you want to fit in with. I don't think that's the case for everyone. People who feel way more bullied, for example, than I felt, um, will sometimes have to feel the pressure to change their entire personality just to get through their school days. And that will be something that sticks with them, that can stick with them for the rest of their life. Well, everything that happens to you when you're at school sticks with you for the rest of your life, I think, for almost everyone. But it, it can really change the way they deal with the world for the rest of their lives, really. 
the feeling you have to completely damp down a whole part of your character, a really important part of your personality, to exist must be awful, and a lot of people do it. Got a bit serious there. I feel a bit like <laughs> Oprah. If Oprah didn't have a scriptwriter. <laughs> and I think this is the point at which, as an adult, you're potentially making the most conscious decisions, or you really start to see the biggest contrasts between who you are, but who you are when you're at home, or when you're out with friends, who you've elected to be with, and who you have to be uh, while you're at work. Yeah. There are at least two different sides to that as well, aren't there? Because there are kind of guidelines of how you're supposed to behave professionally. But there's also this weird re-entry into almost that playground thing where alongside what's expected of you by your employer, you again have to handle the social setting of spending most of your time during the day with people you didn't elect to be around that you might have stuff in common with, but you're more likely not to really have stuff in common with but you're suddenly having to deal with all of these personalities all of those people are kind of trying to cope with being in the same situation of you all being stuck in this place none of you are really allowed to be that honest with each other because you still have to come back and work with each other the next day um i'm also curious as to whether or not you you almost become a completely different person how much people are willing to compromise of themselves to go from their home life to their work life and whether that compromise can make you become an actual different person i choose to think because it keeps me sane that it, it doesn't i guess this can depend where you work if there is a particular dress code for where you work, for example, if you have a uniform or if it's a proper suit and tie sort of environment, it's a physical transformation as much as it is a mental one, isn't it? Sure. So there's that aspect to it. There's also the general professional code, the professional standard of behaviour. Uh, so, some of that's just standard courtesy wherever you go. It's not like there's particular rule books for everywhere, but you temper your language. Uh, you try not to put other people's noses out of joint. Already you're adopting lots of different stuff. These are the rules you have to follow and this is the game you have to play. But that's still very different from bringing your personality into what you do. There'll be a certain amount of autonomous action. But then, you know, if you're not necessarily in front of customers all the time, you're at the coalface or you're just in, a, in an office separated from the rest of the world... You're still you, you're still functioning as yourself, you still have relationships with your colleagues. In some ways, I guess it's an environment that's never left, because you move from school into college, or into college into university, from university hopefully into a place of work. So you've never actually left an environment where you are somewhere where you can't choose the people that you're with. But perhaps the biggest difference is now uh, you're being paid to be there, and so there is an inherent higher risk to screwing up, there is a danger in getting too snarled up about this, but the thing about the workplace is, strictly speaking, it's one of those places where personality shouldn't even be relevant. You're all kind of paid to be there. You all have roles that you're supposed to perform. Sometimes those roles are a little bit nebulously laid out, but that's fine. <laughs> but strictly speaking, there's a hierarchy, and your personality or how you behave shouldn't really come into it. Everyone should be operating at a relatively low volume... <laughs> We're all conscious by this point in our lives that this isn't our real life. This is just what we have to do for money. By this point, we should know, we should all be operating under the same sort of notion that it doesn't really matter. You know, you don't have to express your personality while you're at work. You just have to get the work done, really. If all you had to do when you went to work was not 
be a leather fetishist and everyone else was not being a neo-Nazi or not being really, really annoyingly nice or posh or whatever, then it'd be okay. You'd all be operating at that buzz. But the thing is, what actually happens is you go in and you find that other people are bringing their personalities into the mix. Other people are being really irresponsibly nice or posh or racist or whatever. How can you be irresponsibly nice? (laughs) (laughs) Reckless cake baking. I've brought in 28 lemon drizzle cakes. I just can't stop myself. (laughs) Apropos nothing, and I promise I won't take up too much of your time with this, Steve. Um, I'll hold you to that. Although it will become apparent in a second that I probably I probably don't care uh, <laughs> that, that much about it one way or another. Um, I was um, for, for some reason I wanted to look up uh, what sociopathy is, what a sociopath is. Okay. And apparently, um, unrelated, this is the danger of going onto Wikipedia. Is uh, the World Health Organization defines a conceptually similar disorder to antisocial personality disorder called dissocial personality disorder, and um, it is characterized by at least three of the following six things a callous unconcern for the feelings of others i kind of have that most of the time a gross and persistent attitude of irresponsibility and disregard for social norms rules and obligations yeah i think they're stupid an incapacity to maintain enduring relationships though having no difficulty in establishing them Mm. that's kind of me actually painfully me very low tolerance to frustration and a low threshold for discharge of aggression the thing is i'm reading these things um incapacity to experience guilt is the next one or to profit from experience like to learn from experience that's kind of me as well and markedly prone to blame others or to offer plausible rationalizations for the behaviors that has brought the person into conflict with society really really i badly have that but i'm reading this and i'm thinking surely that's everyone's a bit like all of those things (laughs) aren't they i mean i can't be that different from everyone i'm not sure why i brought it up oh yes because i think that people can be irresponsibly nice it actually does infuriate me when people bring in too many cakes to work it seems a little bit unfair on those of us who have a problem with not eating cakes (laughs) oh you've brought more that means we're gonna have to eat more yeah it's not good, especially if you've already got a packed lunch. And Well, exactly. At least let me know the day before so I don't have to bring so much of a packed lunch in or buy things on the way into work. If you're going to be so generous with your baking, then, then at least make sure I know the day before so I don't have to be so generous in spending money on my own lunch. Oh, that sounded really snobby. What a twat I am. <laughs> Oh, it's your birthday, is it? I failed to see how that's supposed to be my problem. (laughs) But okay, obviously you never say it quite that clearly because you have a mouthful of their cake at at the same time. I'm not even fucking enjoying this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to pick up another one. Watch me hate eating this one. I'm going to hate this twice as much. I know you've got experience with this, but one thing, certainly in terms of the workplace, um, and really I only keep going back to this because it is the most defi- – it's the workplace and relationships with, um, in our case, girls. Yes. But, uh, but, but other genders – are available but the reason we keep going back to work is it's the area where this becomes the most problematic but it's also the most easy to identify and i was probably never more professional than the two years where where i worked as a data entry clerk 
because literally that's the only time in my whole working career where I've had to wear a shirt and tie. I've had really specific targets. Maybe it's been a confidence thing because I was very young when I was doing this. I was literally straight out of university. Or maybe it was just that I was in a very, very big office that already had a very specific hierarchy of professionalism. Yeah. Like we had valuers in that office and, and there was just a way you were supposed to behave. I'm not saying there wasn't dysfunction, but generally you were expected to behave in a certain way. Um, during that time, I was also doing the odd evening working in a comic shop where the manager of the comic shop was the most vile human being probably I've ever met. And the language and the sense of humour on display in that shop was incredibly aggressive and arrogant. I'd literally go from being at this workplace and being very well behaved to being in this other situation where it was a very male environment and very blokey and the language was awful. And definitely I behaved differently there than I did (laughs) when I was at work. Because you'd been in a more regimented, sort of professional, almost dehumanised environment for a while. Did you come into the comic shop sort of overcompensating, either because it was a relief to be out there or because there needed to be more buy-in because you weren't there, you know, you're only there for a couple of hours or whatever? And because the personalities on dis- were pitched at so much higher a volume. Sure, yeah. I don't think so but i think i'm i'm quite a fringe case in this case and this is probably going a little bit deeper than we wanted to but we're talking about uh, how much your personality changes and or how many different versions you have and i definitely do it to a certain extent but because of the way um when i was growing up we moved around quite a lot i think you either become you become this weird mix of being sort of a social chameleon but at the same time you're never going to fit in completely so it ends up not being quite as important to you. There weren't any jokes that if someone said them in the office, I wouldn't laugh at them, but I would if I was at the comic shop or anything like that. But unlike most people who would have been my age in that particular situation, I wasn't afraid to show my disapproval because I kind of knew I was never going to fit in with this particular guy. He was a huge alpha male. This is in the comic shop. Yeah. He had a certain amount invested in being shocking and never quite, never quite letting you settle. He was a bit of a bully basically. But definitely, there was a side to my character that was more likely to say grotesque things that normally I wouldn't be... Normally, I wouldn't be exercising when I was working in my office, but then I might do when I was in the comic shop. I suppose I was a little bit more off the leash when I was in the comic shop. The office job was the only job I've ever had where two or three pints at lunchtime was practically required. That hasn't been the case anywhere else I've worked, so... (laughs) Then I worked at uh, another comic shop in a more responsible position. And it's uh, one thing that's interesting is the version of me that worked in that situation wasn't um, had to be a bit more responsible because I had a little bit more responsibility. But because the whole place was open plan and because we had customers in there, there was kind of a rule that you couldn't swear which hadn't existed anywhere I'd worked before. You couldn't swear in the office because people could hear it everywhere. I never had any trouble with that, whereas actually I swear quite a lot. I had noticed. Yeah, but I would spend sort of eight hours a day, five days a week, and and be perfectly well-spoken and perfectly socially acceptable the whole time because there just wasn't any freedom. And then that's a weird case where being at work, I was this version of me that even spoke a completely different language, really. Just expressed myself completely differently. And again, didn't feel like I was in any sort of straitjacket at all. 
One thing that's quite difficult in a workplace like that, well, in most modern workplaces, I think, is that you can kind of feel like you've got it nailed down how you're supposed to behave in a certain situation. So you talk to clients or management in a in a certain way that is kind of respectful and kind of buttoned down. But then you'll get so many of them who come in, you'll get so many managers, for example, who come in and start talking to you like you're their mate. And then suddenly you're in disarray. It's quite difficult to know how to behave with people like that. Well, he's making jokes with me. Am I supposed to joke back? It can be a little bit confusing. People are in charge, but they won't take charge. It can be a little bit difficult to know exactly how to behave. And I mean, certainly I struggle with this. There's clearly There are clearly still social cues I'm missing there somewhere. Yeah. See, my problem is I figure, well, if we're going to be rude... Let's be, uh, this is the same in almost any social situation, but it, it gets me into more awkward situations at work than it necessarily does anywhere else. I figure if we're going to be rude and we're going to use innuendo, let's not mess around. <laughs> if, if it's about showing how cheeky and dirty we can be, well, why be coy about it? But of course, there are still boundaries there. <laughs> I just haven't necessarily recognised that they're there because there's a certain amount of pretend going on and I'm not that great at that sort of layer of pretend. But we're just showing that we've got this sort of edgy side. There might be an edgy side that we actually have Mm. when expressed with uh, friends and uh, maybe our partner or, or just people that we are more familiar with. The rules are in place. People expect it from you. Again, you can be freer about it. If we then try and express that edgy side in the work environment, we're already editing it, aren't we? Because if we were to express it as loosely as we were going to express it in a comfortable environment with friends in a pub, for example, you're bound to take somebody by surprise. Worse still, offend someone. So you're already already sort of editing it anyway. You're tinkering on the fringes of what you can get away with. Is that honest? Is it honest to censor yourself like that well no i think that's easy to answer no it's not honest to censor but is it honest to try to show an edited version are are we lying (laughs) well i mean that's that's a really interesting question part of my problem i think has always been that i understand how you're supposed to behave but compromising that too much seems dishonest. And also, I'm not good enough at sustaining a lie. (laughs) So I would always err on the side of saying, well, if, for example, if someone's a racist, better that it's out there. You know, if someone has a problem with women or with men or with midgets, better that it's out there. And I know that's not supposed to be how it works in the workplace. People's prejudices and problems and malfunctions come out in other ways in workplaces anyway. It doesn't really matter how nicely everyone talks to each other um, or how inoffensive everyone is. The faces that fit are still going to get treated differently professionally than the faces that don't. Mm. It's almost that there's a level at which it always gets a little bit difficult when you bring up the subject of political correctness, but hell, I'm going to do it anyway. And I think it's very much something that has become most ridiculous in the workplace, solely because it's a way of protecting people whose brains might not be quite right on certain subjects from having to worry about whether or not they're saying something offensive. Rather than just being respectful, they don't have to worry because they're never going to refer to someone's colour or gender or sexuality or anything, so they don't have to worry about whether or not they're saying the right thing. 
It wouldn't be dishonest if we all went to work and were machines from the beginning to the end of the day. Well, it wouldn't be dishonest holding back your personality because it would literally just be you are an automaton while you're at work. You get the work mm. done and, and it's all fine. So ultimately, you are going to end up talking about stuff. And the stuff you're going to end up talking about is your home life or relationships that you're in or whether or not you liked such and such thing or you didn't like such and such a thing. And that's when there becomes this social element to a professional space where dishonesty suddenly does start to feel like a problem for me. It's very difficult when everything's kind of in innuendo and everything's um, quiet and it does feel like a dishonest space to be in if you're not saying what you really think and they're not saying what they really think, but everyone's kind of, you can't help but hide that stuff. I kind of believe that no matter how many different facets to your character you end up showing or bringing to the fore in different places, you're still always going to be you. You might think that you're hiding certain parts of your character from people. What's actually more likely is that nobody's really looking that closely. Yeah, they're not aware that you've turned mm. something down. No, and in fact, I mean, in my case, there are certain elements that I turn down when I'm um, at work. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily presenting a different version of myself. But there are certain things I will turn I will tone down a little bit from how I am with my friends or how I am on podcasts, for example. And yet people still think I'm scatological and swear too much and I'm a bit weird. <laughs> they still kind of can tell. I guess maybe I'm supposed to completely hide those character traits. <laughs> It's kind of natural that we bring different things to the fore in, around different people because it's more fun to. Yeah. Certain, it's more fun to manically talk about video games with people who you know that that's going to be acceptable. But it's, it's natural for that to happen. Um, and, and also because there is a level at which even if you're me, you don't necessarily want to make people feel that uncomfortable when they're around you because, you know, then they're less likely to spend time around you or they can make real problems for you. But yeah, how conscious is it and how concrete is it? Are you actually changing who you are? Are you aware of what you're doing when you're doing it? Or does does it just happen naturally? If you're very deliberately making decisions and not saying things, how far off are you from, like, someone with an actual psychopathy? Um, I feel confident saying that because I, we've already established that we don't know anything about, <laughs> about psychology or psychiatry. Um, if you're thinking really, really hard about how you present yourself... Um, how close to actually presenting a complete fake face are you and how healthy is that for you and how great is it really for the people around you? I think that's a great point. Um, I think I lived it for a while. Hmm. I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be too self-indulgent here and I certainly don't want to spend too much time on it. But I think in the last job I was in, in the, uh, working in the public sector, as time developed, I was more and more aware of the differences between myself outside and inside of work. There were parts of me that I had changed to function, to get through a, a day at work. And I don't want to give across the impression that, I, that it was a really horrible place to work because it wasn't, you know, it was it, to find yourself in something where you're required to be an aut automaton doing something that you have absolutely no interest in for a manager that doesn't know his arse from his elbow. I mean, that sounds like a particularly difficult place to work. Um, mm. My last job wasn't like that. Um, I guess over time I had tempered myself to suit that environment to a degree that meant that I wasn't entirely 
pleased with who I was. Sure. I wouldn't want to be fatalistic and say that, you know, the damage was done. I couldn't turn back from this. But I couldn't necessarily see a way to improve it. Sure. So sort of at peace with the fact that it had to be done, but I wasn't at peace with the result. Getting up in the morning, getting ready for work is a very kind of automatic process. For quite a period of time, I was very aware of the drive to the office. It was a pretty short, brief drive. I could feel myself sinking during the drive. And by the time I'd got to work, I had, I had changed. You'd actually become sort of a more deflated person. Yes, yeah, less inflated, less, uh, <laughs> less rounded, I guess, mm. greyer. What sticks out to me is that I didn't speak much. I spent a lot of time working with my headphones on. Not necessarily because I didn't want other people to talk to me, but I didn't want to hear other people. I just needed to kind of shut everything out, to focus. And also, I can't stand Radio 2. <laughs> yeah. And while I would have the small talk with people in the office, I, I felt a bit uncomfortable about it because I didn't, I, I didn't feel like I was happy enough to give myself away. Mm-hmm. Not to give the game away, but just to share. I didn't feel like I could gain anything by doing it. Again, maybe I was just too fatalistic by this point and there was no way that I could be cured. One of the things where, where I do make a, a definite calculation now, and it's probably been coming through in what we've been talking about, is you kind of, you kind of look at the situation and you think, well, what will I get back? You don't, you don't see it as you're having to do it to take part in society. You're seeing it as, well, what do I get back if I make compromises if i go outside of my com in, in your case maybe go outside of my comfort zone and share my life with these people or it, it, in my case if i reined myself in a little bit from sharing with people <laughs> um, will i gain their respect does it matter that much to me if i do yeah. um, will it progress me professionally do i care that much about that if it does and is it likely to anyway in my case certainly if i if i'm not careful i'll start if i think about it too much i'll start doing this calculation and i think in some ways i have done this calculation and think well would what i would gain from playing ball and creating this different version of myself who does rein themselves in a bit more would it be worth it and in in my case most of the time i've come up with well Probably not. And, and when you say that you, you were keeping yourself closed off from them, well, it sounds like th- there was a point at which you were thinking of it in terms of a decision. Well, I could be more open with these people, but what would happen if I did? It's, it's a bit of a tangent, and I know we don't like to go off on too many tangents, but one of the things I definitely talk to people about in my job is online identities and how you manage your online identities and how open you should be on them, how searchable they are, like your Twitter account and like your Facebook account and stuff like that. All of that stuff about how potential employers can search you out on these things and and you should be really careful what you say. And I know all of that. And yet at some point I've clearly made the decision (laughs) because the version of me that's on Twitter just using Twitter as an example, uh, isn't, I don't think, that dissimilar from the version, of uh, the most honest version of me, like the yeah. the purest version of me, which is why I quite often get into arguments with people on, on Twitter. I quite often misunderstand or misinterpret people. They quite often misinterpret stuff I'm saying because of the way I'm putting myself. Now, I know that that's really not a great idea. From a professional point of view, certainly it's not a great idea, but... Certainly when I started using Twitter, 
this is where I show how very self-unaware I am because I'm kind of going back on a lot of what I said. I was working in an environment where I didn't feel I could have any sort of free conversations with the people who are around me. I didn't really feel like I could express myself in my office space during the day. Mm. And so those social networks were a way for me to be more honest, to say the things that were occurring to me. Maybe it's not healthy for any of us to have that, though. <laughs> To be honest. But it's it's um it's a pressure valve. Yeah. I um I used it in a very similar way. You could just find a little bit of release. I mean, it certainly wouldn't help you if you were just constantly tweeting all day and not getting on with your work. But if if a thought occurred to you, you didn't have to hold on to it. Safe in the knowledge that someone in your followers list has read it. It might not have felt like a dialogue, but you've had it. Sure. Um, it helps. I mean, it certainly helped me. It's interesting because when I initially saw it as a tool and I started using it, I wasn't even thinking of it as a social thing. It was literally a place for me to store things that I was thinking that I could revisit because I had a bad memory. But it very quickly became a place where I could talk about stuff that I was interested in because I was working in an environment. This isn't even necessarily about social practices and, and having to be careful about who I presented myself as emotionally or personality-wise. I was working in an environment where just talking about the things that interested me, regardless of how passionate or not I was about them, wasn't going to get any traction and might actually single me out. I couldn't really talk about films or comics or TV or any of the other things that that kind of interested me. And I felt quite isolated by the fact that I couldn't talk about cars or football or any of those things. Yeah. Sorry, is that the geek's dilemma, do you think? Uh, Potentially, uh, and I think it's I think it's definitely a big factor in why some geeks have become so insanely protective of what being a geek means, <laughs> which which is just ridiculous. But I mean, what's in uh, what's interesting about that situation is I didn't I didn't go the Armando Iannucci route that I think we can all kind of associate with but hopefully from an earlier point in our life where I would try and have the conversations with people and I would try and fit in. I didn't create a version that could talk about football (laughs) or cars or any of those things. Yeah, likewise. Um, I instead retreated into a version, so it wasn't even conscious. I retreated into a version who just had had the conversations I wanted to online Mm. and didn't try to engage with the people around me. So yeah, so I'm not that self I'm not that self aware because clearly I do I do create versions of myself. They just don't help me in social settings. They make it more difficult for me. Going back to what we were saying about when you're starting to choose your friends and who you want to be around and stuff is that like well, I, I mean, we can only assume because it's only the two of us talking, but the truth <laughs> is everyone kind of does this a little bit. Everyone makes compromises to their personality or to their character or to who they're being. I guess the problem becomes when you can shoot for who you want to be, you can try to be a better person, you can try and present a better version of yourself, but what you don't want is a situation where you're feeling forced into it, as you do when you're at school, as you do later on. And it's better if it doesn't become a negative thing. The thing about it is, like, we probably all do this. You and I, I can say to you now that I think that probably everybody does this. But as I said earlier on, most of the time other people aren't going to notice it anyway. And the other thing about it is, it doesn't matter how much control you try and exert over how you are seen by people, how the different versions work. Different people are going to see you however the hell they want to anyway. There are going, there, yeah. uh, there are as many different versions of you as there are people looking at you and applying their own agenda 
to you or whatever. If you are prone to being whimsical when you're around certain people, they're going to think you're dumb. There's nothing you can do about that. The truth is you're not dumb, you're just whimsical. They're two completely different things. I guess it's a problem when you you think you can control this stuff. It's one thing kind of vaguely trying to be nicer to people or whatever. But ultimately, you can only exert so much control over it, and it's when you think yeah. you can control it completely that you're going down real Patrick Bateman territory. I well, think. that's true, isn't it? I mean, a lot of what we've talked about has been quite introspective, has been us individually freaking out about whether we are functioning in this environment correctly, you know, whether we're mm. surviving. Everything is still around survival. We just dress it up in very different ways. Yeah. We only have a small piece of the pie in terms of how successful we've been. We can only gauge how successful we've been by our direct experience, but we've got very little idea or control over the perception that other people had. And I think you put it really, really well by saying there are as many different versions of you as there are people in the room. Mm-hmm. There are a whole bunch of different perceptions and interpretations that uh, you have no control over. And some of those might be positive, some of those might be negative, and there's nothing you can do about it. Perhaps in this situation, we haven't discussed it greatly, we haven't even thought about it, and maybe it's better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's, it's, it's easy just to freak out about ourselves instead of freaking out about what every last person thinks about us. Yeah, yeah, I think so. There's a, like a car sticker that says something along the lines of, I wish I was the sort of person my dog thinks I am. (laughs) And the the first few times I saw that slogan going around the internet, I thought, yeah, my dog is so, like, obviously thinks I'm awesome. Um, I wish I was as good as my dog thinks I am. But the truth is that what my dog really thinks I am is the person who feeds her. That's, that's what she thinks. And, And I am awesome or less. I am her criteria for how great a person I am, are so completely different from what I should be aspiring to. <laughs> to wish that you could be the best person that your dog wants you to be would sort of be to um, to feed them at all times, mm-hmm. to take them on walks, to never take them to the bath, mm-hmm. to be perfectly okay with them wanting to go inside and outside uh, every two or three minutes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to basically be their footman, to be their doorman, to usher them in and out gleefully as if... I think secretly they run the show anyway, but sure. their skill is, is obviously not letting you know that to still make you feel like you're in charge. I definitely think you're on to something there. So maybe <laughs> we've been doing this all wrong. This whole time we've been doing this all wrong. That we've been, um, as, you know, aspiring to be particular versions of ourselves um, to uh, survive in these various environments. And actually what we really need to be focusing on is how we can adapt ourselves to be the very best that we can be in order to satisfy our pets. Do you know, I honestly thought we were going to end up coming to the conclusion that we should try to be the version of us that makes us the most happy. But I think your conclusion is better. For the sole reason, and I can only speak for myself, I'm guessing I'm probably speaking for you as well, that let's face it, we're never really going to be happy, are we? Not with, us, not with ourselves. No. no. That is absolutely true. <laughs> so, so best to focus our energies on something that might actually have a relative level of success. Oh yeah, low, low-hanging fruit, <laughs> um, achievable goals. I think you're right. Good. I think we've nailed this for now. (laughs) Yeah, I think we have. To the cross. (laughs) And we don't want.
want to repeat ourselves too much. Well, I don't want to repeat myself too much. Or at the same time, maybe we have catchphrases and we just haven't realised it. <laughs> <laughs> God. But if, if we have, they're probably about a paragraph long in, in my case. No, most of the catchphrases that I've come across are stuff like, um, and you know, and <laughs> all of a sudden, and kind of, or sort of. 